An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have as our special guest, Bruce Dubinsky. Those of you who watched Netflix's hit documentary on Bernie Madoff saw Bruce explain how his expert witness testimony for the United States Department of Justice proved Madoff was running a Ponzi scheme and helped put five Madoff associates behind bars. It was no accident Bruce was involved in that case. He's one of the foremost forensic accountants in the world. He's been an expert witness more than 100 times in his career and has been involved not only in Department of Justice enforcement actions, but also cases brought by the SEC and the IRS. In addition to Madoff, he's been integral to the investigations into Enron, a contested International Brotherhood of Teamsters election, the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy, and the Parmalat fraud. Now the owner of the eponymously named Dubinsky Consulting, Bruce was global leader for forensics at Duffin Films. He's a CPA and he holds certifications. Wait, let me take a breath here in fraud examinations, anti-money laundering, valuation, and financial forensics, as well as a master's degree in tax accounting and a certificate as a master analyst in financial forensics. Bruce is so respected that he was elected chairman of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners Board of Regents. Finally, a bit of disclosure. Bruce is a cousin. Since he's a forensic accountant, I'd better be precise. Bruce is a first cousin, once removed. Welcome, Bruce. John, great to be here. Thank you. So what's your origin story? You went to college to be pre-med, and the next thing I knew, you were a forensic accountant. How'd you become the person you are today? And since I knew your parents, I have to ask, what did you take from them? So it was an interesting journey. You talk about, I started out pre-med and I got to Rutgers University in New Jersey and took the first uh, organic chemistry class and realized I was not going to med school at that point. While I was good with science, I was great with numbers and decided to make a transfer and head back south a little bit to the University of Maryland uh, and enrolled in the accounting program. And, you know, from there, um, my career started. I look back to what my dad told me when I was going to college. And when I told him I wasn't going to go to, to med school, I think my mom's heart sank. But my older sister, Diane, was already uh, in med school at that point. So that we ticked off that in the family. And my dad said to me, you know, one of the things in business, everybody needs an accountant. Go to accounting, get your degree in accounting. You can always do what you want in business but you'll have that foundation of, of understanding how a business works from the number side of it. And I took his advice for, for once. I guess I was a little bit older and wiser at that point in college, and, and I did listen to him. And I majored in accounting and never wanted to be an accountant. I kind of ended up being an accountant because at the third and fourth year of accounting, uh, all the recruiters from, at that time, it was the big eight and the international accounting firm show up on campus. 
and everybody is headed towards accounting job. And I was kind of thrust into that, that wave, if you will. I took a little detour while I was interviewing. I interviewed with the FBI at that time. Uh, this was in the early 80s. At the FBI, we're just starting to look at hiring accountants as special agents, not as analysts, but as special agents. And I remember interviewing with the, uh, the special agent. Interview went great. I already had a, a job offer at that point from what was then called Alexander Grant and Company. It was an international accounting firm. And the interview concludes at the FBI and he starts telling me what the next steps are. And one of the next steps was a thorough background check. And I said, oh, it's interesting. What's involved in that? And he said, well, we'll go back to, you know, your friends in elementary school all the way back through high school and even your college uh, um, buddies. By the way, were you in a fraternity? I said, yes, I was. I am. And he kind of looked at me and I said, by the way, I've got an offer for $18,600 from a public accounting firm. Uh, what are you guys offering? And he said, well, we're the FBI. We're offering $12,000. It's not an offer. That's what we pay. It's a government pay scale. And I said, well, is there any way you can match the offer I got from the accounting firm? And he said, we're the FBI. We don't match offers. It's a government pay scale. He said, but if you come with us, you get to carry a gun. And at those days, I would just that, that didn't excite me. I had student loans to pay off and ended up heading to the public accounting route at that point. So what were you so worried about in the background check? It's, it's dish the dirt here. Well, you go back to the animal house days and you've you got friends and, and uh, drinking parties. And I just didn't know what the FBI was going to look into. Fast forward in my career, I've, I've now had uh, government clearances, high security clearances. I passed everything. I've been fingerprinted many times for the FBI and, and IRS criminal cases. So there was nothing in the past that, that prevented me. But as a young kid in college, when, when an FBI agent is staring you in the face and said, we're going to do a thorough background check and we're going all the way back, uh, you know, you start scratching your head and pause a little bit. Okay. So you're known for being an expert forensic accountant. And I know that means more than fraud, but let's focus on that for a minute. Do you remember the first fraud you came across? What did you think at that time? I mean, is there a taxonomy to how an accountant reacts to fraud sort of like you know, the stages of grief, do you have to go through denial first before you get to acceptance? That's a, that's a good, good point. The first fraud that I worked on goes way, way back when I had a, an accounting firm and I had clients. I had uh, a lot of doctors and architects and professional clients. Uh, and it was a fraud at a, um, a doctor's office. And what the bookkeeper did very cleverly, each doctor had an American Express card. And they would charge an amount each month for, you know, expenses that went through the business. Sometimes they were personal expenses that got charged through on that card. She became very keen on the amount each doctor was charging each month. So call it $5,000 a month each doctor would charge. She knew the payment cycle from American Express. She would catch the doctors in between exam rooms with a check for them to sign. And she would say, here's the check to pay your American Express bill. And it's, it was a check for about $5,000. She would hit the other doctor at a different time. Then she would hit the other doctor at another time. Well, what they didn't realize is she also was charging the same amount on her personal American Express card. And one of the checks that was made out to American Express was for her personal card. And she was charging roughly in the same amount. So, you know, we uncovered it after doing the year-end work. We realized the American Express charges had doubled from the last year. And that kind of prompted me to say, what's going on here? And the interesting part of that, John, was this bookkeeper, when we did a background check on her after the fact, had problems in other uh, medical practices. And it's one of the problems you find with, with fraudsters is 
the when they're when they're kind of outed in the in the situation, you know, the fraud comes to light, you find out that they've got a background of doing it in other places. And a lot of people are loath to report to the authorities uh, because they don't want to look bad and, and like they were stupid, the fraud was perpetrated on them. These fraudsters will go somewhere else. In that particular case, we did turn her into the, the local authorities and they prosecuted her and, and restitution was made. But the mind of a fraudster is a, is a very interesting mindset uh, it's of denial. It's of rationale. There's a lot of rationale on why uh, she did it. In this case, she said she, she was furnishing a new house and, and she needed the money, wasn't being paid enough and thought she was do what she was taking. So she rationalized that, which is one of the, the three prongs in the uh, fraud triangle when you investigate fraud. But look, you know, I found over my, over my career, fraudsters know what they're doing is wrong. When you hear them say, well, I didn't really know it was wrong. That's, that's not, that's not truthful. They, they know the difference between right and wrong. We were all taught that when we were young kids, uh, the difference between right and wrong, but it's people get on that slippery slope and they don't know how to get off of it at that point. And that becomes a problem. Even Madoff admitted he knew what he was doing wrong. And, and he in fact said he didn't expect to get it. You couldn't believe he got away with it as long as he did. So let's take that as the segue to look at your recent starring turn in the recent documentary. But I don't want to talk about, you know, cameras and bright lights. I, w I want to talk about the granularity of that fraud investigation to illustrate just how deep you went to research the issue. For instance, I understand you went out and found and replicated a discontinued anachronistic computer system. Take us through all the things you did in the Madoff case just in a minute or two. I know that's hard to do because it's been ongoing for years, but if you could. So when I got involved, there was a warehouse in, um, in Queens full of documents, millions and millions of hard copies of documents. There were forensic forensics that had been done on about 18,000 pieces of electronic data. So computers, cell phones, uh, you name it, mainframes. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I, I needed to sift through that in, in a quick manner to, to start the investigation. And I thought one of the easiest ways was the FBI had already seized Madoff's computer. So they had those in custody and, and the criminal case was, was being moving forward towards trial. So I couldn't get access to, to the evidence that the FBI had at that point. Um, and so I secured the exact same computer system, an AS400, an old IBM uh, dinosaur system. There were two left in the country. I found one of them down in Atlanta. We brought it up to New York, stripped it down, put the operating system on it, and it took backup tapes that Madoff had made of, back, of the backup systems and restored the actual code that he used, both in the legitimate side of the business, because there was a side of the business that was a market-making and prop, prop trading side, as well as the computer programs that they cooked in the investment advisory side. In other words, they took legitimate programs and, and manipulated the code to help perpetrate the fraud on the investment advisory side. And that was one of the big keys to, to uncovering what they had done, to see how they manipulated the code, how it worked to put the fake trades in. Um, that was kind of the holy grail of, of figuring it out. As you point out, there were fake trades. In effect, he was running a printing press rather than an investment advisory business. The ACFE, where your chairman emeritus, recently said, external auditors only find about 4% of fraud. And I want to ask you about that because... What is it about fraud that makes it such a difficult issue for auditors? I get auditors are human. Humans don't always find everything. But the industry does such stupid things when they leave the oppression 
that they're more concerned with avoiding liability when things go wrong than actually getting it right in the first place. So they say things like, it's really hard to find clever fraud, but they say that after the fraud's been discovered by someone else, so was that clever? And it's like an admission that the forces are, are smarter than they are. Hey, earlier in my career, I specialized, we overlapped actually, you don't realize this, on Madoff and a couple of other things. Earlier in my career, I specialized in being on the creditor committees of bankruptcies caused by fraud. WorldCom had something like 27 different accounting systems that didn't talk to each other. So journal entries were used, the expenses were capitalized. That's not sophisticated. I was on no. a creditors committee of something called Little Nature's, uh, a soft drink company. It valued tea and inventory at more than $30 an ounce when it was worth pennies, and then borrowed tens of millions of dollars about it, and, and the founder got a kickback. Again, not hard to find. Now, the audit standards say an audit should be planned and performed to make sure the financial statements are free of material misstatement, whether due to error or fraud. But the profession seems to want it both ways. So you get things like the head of Grant Thornton in the UK saying auditors aren't responsible for finding fraud. So what is it about fraud that makes it such a difficult issue for auditors? Let me unpack that. There's so many points that you brought up there where I could spend hours and hours discussing it. Let me go back to when you were talking about WorldCom. I was hired on a case back in the day. The predecessor was MCI and mm -hmm. became WorldCom. And there was allegations that there were two sets of books being kept by MCI. And so I was hired in, in a, a litigation to go out and investigate. I was, I was hired as a neutral, actually, by an arbitrator to go out and see what I could find. And I went out to uh, outside Denver. I'll never forget this. It was a, an MCI uh, building, kind of a campus-style building. And I was assigned somebody that was going to babysit me. And I could ask for what I wanted and, and go through what I wanted. And this individual had a brother that was very sick. And we just started talking and just kind of humanized the relationship. And about three days into my stay out there, um, I said, boy, it would be really nice if that old legacy system that is uh, no longer working was still live um, for, for the billing, for the AR accounts receivable. He said, what do you mean? It is still live. I said, well, that's interesting. I was told it was no longer live and you couldn't get into it. He said, sure, I'll, I'll show you how to get into it. And he walked me down the hall and we sat in a cubicle and he logged on to this legacy system. In Viola, I had two sets of books. I had the old legacy system that they were still using and a new system. And, that, and I just found that by be, befriending and being a human to, to this guy and listening to him. And he, you know, for whatever reason, wanted to show me that there were two systems. You go back to your question, why is it so hard for auditors to find fraud? First of all, fraud by, by its very nature is the intent to deceive somebody. So if you're a good fraudster, you're, you're one step ahead of people if you're good. Most fraudsters will trip up at some point and get caught, but a lot of them will go on for years, like Madoff did for years, without ever getting caught. You look at what's going on with the audit profession. Audits are a highly commoditized service. People don't want to pay for audits. They have to get them because it's a requirement. If you have bank lending, if you're a publicly traded company, you need them. And... It's a shocking statistic, but less than one half of 1% of all college graduates now are going into accounting. That's, that means nobody's going into accounting. Why is that? Accounting's not sexy. Accounting doesn't pay. You know, you can go to law school, you're going to make a lot more money. You can go to med school, you used to make a lot more money. That's changed. But the accountants really have never been paid that well. 
So you've got less people going into it. You're not getting paid that well. You have junior accountants that go out on the audit. And I remember my first audit, it was a government contractor and I was sent in to ask the CFO a question. I didn't know what the heck I was asking. And he gave me an answer. I don't know what the heck the answer meant. I went and wrote it down in a, in a work paper and, and on down the road, only to find out two years later that that contractor was defrauding the federal government. I didn't get up. I was a young auditor. I didn't know, you know anything. The managers on the audit were five-year managers. They didn't know. So it gets to the lack of experience. I always tell people, in order to find the fraud, I have to know how the business should, should look and feel in, in, you know, in the ordinary course. And if you don't understand the complexity of a business, how it operates, how the subsidiaries operate, you'll never be able to find the fraud. And that's the problem with, with the audit profession. You go back to, your, to the last point you made, which was an excellent point. The profession spends so much time trying to hide from, from the liability and, and they want it both ways. So I've said for years, they hide behind the audit opinion letter. They hide behind the management rep letter that the management signs off saying, we're not aware of any fraud. Well, how many times is management actually perpetrating a fraud? And yet they sign those letters. And the auditors point to that and say, not our responsibility to find the fraud. The audit standards say we have to plan and consider whether there's fraud and what the risk is, but it's not a fraud investigation. It's not a fraud audit. So I think, look, there are problems with the profession in that regard, and, and, and um, they continue to hide behind it. And I know many of my colleagues in the audit community don't like what I'm saying, but I think that's the reality and the truth. And we'll leave it there. Uh, not much I can handle. Although I will just for the heck of it, trade one other WorldCom story with you. My, my favorite, um, there, I have a couple of favorite stories there, but one of them was there were three people whose entire job it was was to sit in Jackson, Mississippi, where WorldCom was headquartered, and photocopy bills for enterprise-wide clients like General Motors or Coca-Cola onto the same letterhead and put it in chronological order so that it was not clear that not only did the accounting system not talk to each other, but the billing systems didn't talk to each other. I cannot think of a worse job. It's sort of like I being in purgatory than recopying hundreds of lines of phone calls to put them in chronological order on the same letterhead just to conceal how poorly run my company is. Right. And, and, you know, to that point, it's amazing that that's not a complicated fraud going on. I mean, that's pretty basic stuff. Yet, if you hand those invoices to an, a young auditor that's in, tasked with auditing that account, they'd look at it and they say, okay, the numbers agree. They look, it looks good, and they would tick what's called tick and tie it to the general ledger or the trial balance and move on. They don't look and say, well, does something look suspect on this invoice? Well, you know, is, is there a date chronologically different? Now, I will tell you with the advent of computers and, um, uh, and technology, uh, auditing has become a lot more automated. And so some of those patterns of things, you know, uh, invoices on the same date appearing, duplicate invoice number, some of that kind of is ferreted to the top. But I come back to when you're hiring young auditors out of college with no business experience whatsoever to go out and audit the most important part of the audit, the cash, right? And you put the youngest auditor with the least experience auditing and reconciling cash. I mean, come on. It's uh, it's just, I could go on for hours about the audit profession. Well, we will, we will stop it there. And I'll ask for your advice for the investing profession at this point. Um, because good forensic auditors don't just look for fraud, 
what you really do is make sure the picture that we investors get, or your clients in some cases, of an enterprise by looking at the numbers accurately reflects the reality. You tell a story. Sometimes that involves uncovering fraud, but sometimes it's just understanding and explaining context. So many of the listeners of this podcast, as you note, are investors. So having a better picture of the businesses in which we invest sounds like a good idea. And though the specifics of each situation are different, let me ask if there's some common indicia that repeat in problematic companies that might be warning signs to investors to look a little more closely at the situation. For instance, you noted a number of similarities recently between Madoff and the collapse of FTX securities. So what are those indicia? Between Madoff and FTX, they had, um, you know, they were, they were small companies run by one individual, basically. Sam Bankman fried at FTX and, and Bernie Madoff made off. They had close confidence around them um, that the confidants would, would basically march to their orders and do what they wanted. And I think more will come out in the FTX trial. We'll hear about that. They had obscure uh, auditors. They weren't using big audit firms. There's a reason for that. The, the big audit firms, they do do a better job of, of auditing. Also with a small audit firm, you know, if, if you want to, um, hate to say the term, pay, pay off an auditor or, or manipulate that auditor, it's easier. So those are some of the same similarities. The secrecy, the shroud of secrecy. Now in Madoff, there was a shroud of secrecy. In FTX, uh, Bankman-Fried was all over the, the media you know, giving, giving interviews and, and testifying before Congress. Um, but I think he was doing that when he needed to, to raise more money to keep the fraud going. Madoff was smart enough when he needed more money, he had a circle of people he could go to and he wanted to stay out of the limelight. But it's not just looking at the numbers when you're investing. Numbers are, are one part of the picture, one, one piece of the puzzle, so to speak, John. You, you got to look at management and you have to look at um, the integrity of management. And as cliche as that sounds, I sit a lot when I'm doing investigations and I will sit and have a conversation. I'm not interviewing the, the people at that point. I'm not interrogating them. I'm just having a conversation. I'm looking at body language. I'm looking at uh, just how they, they converse with me. Um, and I'm, I'm assessing all that. My radar screen is, is up. You know, too many investors rely on a due diligence written report. Um, and they can never see the person that, that they're investing in say it's a hedge fund. They don't know who's sitting at the top. They, they read the report, but they're not the ones that can sit across from that, that person and really get a feel for what's going on. And I think that's important when, when I'm out doing an investigation, unfortunately it's after the fact, you know, it's, it's like that old, um, was it the Pennzoil commercial? One of the commercials, you can pay me now or pay me later for the, for the oil filter. Um, and, and if you put proper oil in. People don't want to spend the money up front. They want, you know, if they're doing due diligence, they'll spend a little bit of money, the bare minimum on a due diligence report. Those reports are very thin. They don't go into a lot of background. And I'm called in after the fact, unfortunately, when, when everything hit the fan, so to speak. And part of it is looking at the entire environment, the people, the environment, what's the work, work space? Is it a hostile work environment? Is there a lot of pressure at every, every month end or every quarter end? Um, all of that comes into play when you're assessing whether there's a fraud, uh, what the fraud risk is in the environment. And I think it becomes very, very important for investors at that point to understand. And unfortunately, they don't take the time many times to, to do that. I want to make it clear, you're not suggesting that the audit firms were paid off. You were just suggesting that if you wanted to, it's easier with a smaller firm. 
Well, look, in the case of Madoff, um, it was pretty clear the guy was was being paid off, not in direct pay payments, but um, there were there was a ton of indirect money that that went to that accounting firm. It was a small accounting firm in a shopping center. When I physically went through the Madoff um, offices, I stopped at one point and I said to one of my colleagues, "There, look at that. There are cases, literally, John, cases of auditor letterhead and envelopes sitting in Madoff's office." You would never, as an auditor, leave cases of your letterhead in, in there. And, what, and so that prompted me to search in the computers. And what I found was Microsoft Word documents of audit opinions on the Madoff computers where Madoff personnel were, were changing the dates and sending out their own audit opinion letters with the auditor letterhead. And I, I did the, the, you know, the metadata and forensics on those files. And we knew who prepared them and when. And, and I mean, it was just mind boggling. But. Look, there have been cases where auditors are paid off, but I'm not suggesting the big audit firms get paid off. You also mentioned quality of management and due diligence, and I agree. I've done over a thousand due diligences of investment managers, and I want to look in the whites of their eyes. And in fact, I steered a well-known hedge fund allocator away from Madoff because Madoff wouldn't allow me to come visit his office. I had no suspicion that it was a fraud, but I just said, I don't know how you made money. I don't know how you can... Invested in them, not investing just on the basis of a series of returns. I, I got a little bit of a thank you for saving a guy $10 million, but not nearly enough. Uh, so, but, but due diligence can cut two ways. And I want to ask you about it. You are a telegenic person. You're often featured on television. I remember one week I saw you on back-to-back days on two different national broadcasts, one talking about FTX and another about it happened during the day that Congress released President Trump's tax returns. And you've also counseled other expert witnesses that how you present impacts how a jury views your evidence. So you work on preparing your presentation as much as you work on preparing your analysis. I, on the other hand, have always counseled investors who are doing due diligence on an investment manager that there's no correlation, neither positive nor negative, between investing skills and presentation skills. So you have to discount exceptionally positive or negative presentations and focus on the evidence of investing skill, fit, operational ability, et cetera. Now, ideally, of course, you want competence and the ability to explain. But how do you differentiate between a convincing presentation like competent management versus a slick presentation, at least in hindsight, from a management with less substance? I think it, it comes down to the questions you ask uh, in those interviews, in, in those sessions. Uh, I've seen a lot, you know, I, I was a registered investment advisor. I registered uh, with the SEC many years ago, and I went to a lot of slick presentations, and I would ask some basic questions sometimes, and, and the presenter would stutter and just didn't have the answer. As I said earlier in the podcast, I like to have a conversation with somebody. And I've seen a lot of people when they're doing a fraud investigation or even due diligence, sometimes they'll come in with a checklist of questions and they'll just ask question after question. It's scripted, right? Um, and that's not the good way, the best way to do it. I think sitting and having a conversation with somebody, I can look at their, their, their fancy PowerPoints or, or their, their glossy brochure. I want to see how do they interact with me as a human? Do I, do I connect with them as a human being? What's my gut telling me about them? Are they looking me in the eyes when I, when I ask a question and they answer it? Are they sincere? And I think that's so much more important 
yes, you can look at their, their historical returns. You can look at a lot of things about the organization, but it comes down to, and Warren Buffett said this, one of my favorite books is, is the Warren Buffett way. And I think he's just a fabulous investor and, and smart guy. He said, look, I invest in companies where I understand what the management is doing and who they are and, and who they are as people. And I think that goes a long way. His famous quote is, as you know, it's, it's when the, when the tide goes out, it's when you know who's been swimming naked. Um, and that tells you at that point, what type of people they really were, but that's post facto. When you're investing money, you want to make sure upfront you're investing with good people. And good people that are honest and, and, and sincere can basically run any type of company or any type of management uh, or investment platform. I'd, I'd rather go with just a solid, good person that I can communicate with than somebody that, one, I don't understand their answers. If they're giving you answers, take, take for instance, FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. You go back and look at some of his interviews. He was asked basic questions and he rambled for five minutes. And I would listen to it and watch it and I'd scratch my head and say, what did this guy just say? And, and to people that really did, couldn't read past that, they were like, wow, this guy's really smart. I read it as this guy's just full of BS at this point. And, and he's trying to just hoodwink people into giving them money, which is what it turned out to be. You know, it's easy to play armchair quarterback when you see these interviews and now know what, what went on. But I think that's a lesson to learn when you're talking to people. If you can't understand a basic, you know, you ask them a basic question and you get this answer, Maybe it's about Monte Carlo analysis and, and they're rambling about that. There's a problem there. You know, basic Monte Carlo can be explained pretty, pretty quickly to somebody and you can understand it. Um, so I think it comes down to that. A lot of it is gut feeling too, when you're dealing with people. Let's finish with a couple of quick questions and answers. How do you relax? It sounds crazy. I'm, I'm into cars and I've got some nice cars. I love to detail my cars. I'll go out and just work on my cars. I bought a boat this past year down in Florida. I go down to the boat, put some headphones on. I'll just start cleaning the boat. It, it lets me escape from the world. I put the phone down. I put the Instagram down. The, the news headlines go away. And I can just kind of focus on the, the, a very simple task at hand. And that's whether it's the boat or my car, cleaning it to the best that I can and standing back and being proud of the work that I just did on it. You know, it's such a simple task, but it has meaning to me to be able to do something so simple and escape from everything else that it just gives me that, that peace. Um, I enjoy doing it. What's playing in the headphones? What music do you listen to? Well, I've got a variety of music. Um, right now, probably the last, I would say five to seven years, I've been heavy into country music that ranges from, you know, I'm a big Jason Aldean fan. Um, but I go back to my roots in hard rock. I love Led Zeppelin and, and go back to Bad Company and ZZ Top. I just watched on Netflix the ZZ Top documentary the other night. That was fascinating. You know, sometimes I'll put on smooth jazz. So I, I like all genres of music. What are you reading right now? Um, I'm not reading anything right now. I love the James Patterson, Alex Cross books. I know there's a new one that, that uh, just came out. Patterson's a great, great writer. I like to escape into the the murder mysteries. And maybe that's the, the intrigue of being an investigator at heart. That's what I do as a forensic investigator. I investigate things, but again, I, you know, my, it's interesting. My go-to book before I go to trial, I pick up a copy of the art of war and by Sun Tzu, I reread that and people laugh, but there's so many good things in there that translate from 
going into so-called battle, but even into just general business, we're generally dealing with people. The quote that I love out of the art of, art of war is the wise warrior avoids the battle. And, you know, if you take that into context of your daily life, whether it's getting, you know, someone is in road rage, beeping their horn at you, you can yell back at them, but what's the purpose? You're not going to, you're not going to win anything or getting into a screaming match in a store over something. You're not going to win anything. So I, I really tend to avoid those battles. Life is too short, but when I do go, go into trial, I have to be the advocate for my expert opinion. And I want to know who my adversaries are up on the other side for cross-examination. I treat it very seriously. And there are a lot of uh, parables in the art of war that I apply in the courtroom and have been battle tested both in corporate America and, and otherwise. And I find fascinating. It's, it's an int really interesting read. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? We were just talking about that yesterday Had nine people out on the, on the boat yesterday. It was beautiful in South Florida. And we were all talking about where to, where to go on my bucket list. It, number one is to do a safari in, in Africa. I, I want to find the time to do that. Um, I've been to a lot of countries in Europe, uh, but I have not been to the African continent. I'd like to do that and spend some time there. I'd also like to, to go on uh, a, a boat and go to Exuma. I've heard a lot of good things about that in the Bahamas, kind of cruise from island to island, spend a couple of weeks just relaxing and doing that. There's a lot to see and do. I've spent the last couple of years seeing more places in the United States. It's a beautiful country and a lot of people neglect it. I, and myself included, I would hop on planes and go to Europe and the south of France or to Paris or to London, different places over there. Amsterdam's beautiful. There's so many places, John, in this country that are just gorgeous that I'd, I'd like to take some more time and, and just start spending time going through the United States and just savoring what we have right here in our own backyard that people don't take advantage of. Okay. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? Wow. One thing to tell people in the world. I think, and, and this may sound cliche, just be kind to people. I've learned in my life that when you're kind to people, people respect you. They'll be kind to you. They'll reciprocate in times of needs. Don't look for things for, from other people, but when you're kind to them, there's that natural reciprocation that will occur. And, you know, without getting into politics or, or just differences, we all have differences. We all have differences of views, but respect each other. Just, to, I was taught by my parents, you know, and, and my, really my, my grandfather on the, my maternal side, he, had, he said something to me that stuck with me. He said, if you don't have something nice to say about somebody, don't say anything at all. And that stuck with me. And we all get in the habit of kind of getting to that point of you, you want to say something nasty. Just don't do it. it. It doesn't serve any purpose. And I come back to being kind to people. You don't have to agree with them, but just be kind and nice to people. I think that this world would be a much better place if we all practice that. Thanks. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukomnik, with our special guest, Bruce Dubinsky. Bruce is one of the foremost forensic accountants in the world, forensic investigators. So thank you, Bruce. Thanks for being kind enough to be on the show. Thank you, John. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukomnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, 
Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.